0: Of you were at four twelve, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago, was it? Get to get to four twelve. Um, have a what? what are those um, little spiritual gift inventory forms? Have how many have seen one of those or have, have done a little spiritual gift inventory? Done a little kind of a test? Yeah, a few hands going up. Um, just just kind of working out. Well, how has God shaped me? Um, what does it look like for grace to be authorized? from heaven to flow down through my life um, to, to others. We're going to have a little bit of a more of a look at that on uh, this coming Wednesday, just the dynamics of that, how that looks, what spiritual gifts are, and, and so forth. But I wanted to, wanted to chat with you a little bit tonight um, on that theme. We're back in Mark, the Gospel of Mark. Do you, do you remember where we left off? Any thoughts? Chapter 9, Scott, well done. Right. You remembered? No, you just took a punt. Oh, you were here this morning. <laughs> yeah, well done. Um, yeah, chapter, chapter 9, we, we left off in the Gospel of Mark. And as I was first looking at the passage, and you'll kind of understand why in a moment. We're going to look at the passage, we are going to open it up, and you're going to think, what has this got to do with spiritual gifts? But when I first looked at the passage this week, I sort of, really? Is that, is that kind of where we're, we're going to kick off? at um, Getting back into the Gospel of Mark. But I want to look a little bit tonight at the person God uses, the person that God uses. And if you've been um, having a think about your spiritual gifts and so forth, you may have sort of ticked the list and you may have come up with a couple of things. And often, actually, when you use those lists or spiritual gift inventories, we sometimes call them, um, often as you use those, it can reflect a little bit, well, what's your life experience up until this point in time? Um, and uh, and there aren't, you know, perhaps sometimes that many surprises. There are very few people who do those, have never sung in their life, and suddenly end up being a worship leader, for instance. Sometimes it just reflects a little bit of past experience. But, of course, you can be identified, or you can identify some spiritual gifts and kind of say, well, that's cool. I've got this gift, or I've got that gift. But there's still a little bit of a question as to, well, is God going to use me? I mean, I've got this particular gift, but but is God actually going to use me? Is His grace going to flow through me, and is it is He going to actually um, use me to touch the lives of others? Because most of us would would love to think that that He will. So let's have a little bit of a let's have a little bit of a think about the person that that God uses. It might surprise you. Mark chapter nine. We're going to. We're going to read verse, um, from verse 38 through to the end of the chapter, verse, verse 50. Parts of this passage will, will be familiar to you and, and parts perhaps a little bit new. Verse 38, Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Forever, who, Whoever is not against us is for us. Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worms that eat, them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. That's kind of an interesting passage, isn't it? If I was to finish there and say have a great week, I wonder what you would you would take away. Well let's have a little bit of a delve into this. There are some some hidden gems in here. The person God uses, it might surprise you. It certainly did the disciples. The interesting thing about this first little section here, teacher and, and, you know, John, the beloved disciple, well, he's quite anxious to tell Jesus what it is that they've done. We saw somebody casting out demons in your name, but we told them to stop. Like, this is a good thing. Now, there's lots of surprising elements here. Here's one of the first. Jesus doesn't debunk the fact that this other person was casting out demons in his name. And that's not in question. Apparently it was happening somebody who was not one of the you know disciples of Jesus official disciples of Jesus was actually casting out demons and they were using Jesus name to do it there's no question about that Jesus doesn't delve into that or cast any doubt over the fact that that was happening in fact he seems to to validate that and so the disciples pick up at this point a very something very interesting they know that this person was not one of us meaning Well, he's he's not one of us disciples. And now they learn from what Jesus says that power is not positional. Power is not positional. In other words, by having a position in proximity to Jesus, I'm one of Jesus' official disciples, having that position doesn't help you at all when it comes to the power of God. Jesus says instead, well... Don't stop them. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say something bad about them. Whoever is not against us is, is for us. The key here seems to be the words, in my name. Power seems to be effective through a believer, not because of your position, not because you're the lead pastor or you have some other role in church, or even just the fact that you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's not your position that seems to matter here. It's the name of Jesus. It's that what you do is done in Jesus' name. Essentially, by by doing something in the name of Jesus, you are doing it under his authority. You are evoking his name to to basically utilise his authority. Um. As most of you know by now, many, many years ago, I um, started out my uh, second career. Actually, I started out my first career was in the bank, but my second, second career was, was with the Victoria Police Force, and the intersection, when you worked at City Traffic, the intersection to police was Flinders and Swanston. We called it 12 Point. It's just a busy intersection. You've got things happening everywhere, people walking all over the place, and, and trams coming back and forth and so forth. and. And I still recall the very first day I walked right out, we call it on point, I walked right out on point and uh, started to direct traffic. Now you might think that, huh, it looks pretty easy, hand signals, pretty simple, nothing too complicated about that. As long as I was standing in that same position that that police officer was standing, as long as I'm standing in that position, I think, you know, everything will go as I direct it to go. And that could be the last contribution you ever make to planet Earth. Because it's not the position, actually. Although the positioning was important in terms of dodging trams. It's not the position per se, but the name in which you do it. Now, I had a particular name, and it wasn't wasn't Constable Stuart Hunt, but I had a particular name. It was written on the badge on my shoulder, and it basically said Victoria Police. There's an Act of Parliament that says that any sworn member of the police force so identified actually is authorised to direct traffic. But you do have to have that name. You do have to come under that name. You have to be able to say that, yep, look there, Victoria Police. That's what authorises me to do what I'm currently doing. The power is associated with the name. Same here. Power is not positional. Doesn't, doesn't matter that you can say, I have this position or I have this position. It has to do with what authority do you have? And can you, can you state that authority by, by um, stating the name of, of Jesus Christ? In fact, so important is the name in terms of authority that Jesus goes on and he says, even a little thing. Imagine, okay, we're talking about casting out demons. We're talking about miracles here. But I, I even tell you that if you just take a very, very simple act, there is somebody who is thirsty, I have a glass of water, and because, hey, they're a disciple of Jesus Christ, I give them that glass of water in his name, in the name of Jesus. All of a sudden, that simple act of hospitality is going to be a great blessing to them, and actually, you too will receive a blessing. It suddenly becomes done under the right authority it suddenly becomes, done in the name of Jesus, it becomes ministry. And there is blessing, both for the person that you're serving and and indeed for yourself, says Jesus. So the person that God uses needs to understand that power is not positional. The person that God uses needs to understand that that it's all about the name of Jesus and the authority that is associated with that name. Then we go on to a different section, but but it is related and we'll get there. I hope I don't lose you just for a moment. But the person that God uses is also careful of anything that might cause them to stumble. In this particular part of the passage, to stumble uh, means, yes, to sin. To sin, to fall away from God, to miss the mark. That's what the passage is talking about. The person that God is going to use is going to be careful that they don't fall into sin, that they don't, they don't stumble. Firstly, what Jesus says, by way, of, by way of caution here, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. I heard somebody say once, you know, Old Testament's got some pretty tough things in it. I reckon even the New Testament has some pretty tough things in it. I think we've just got to get back to kind of a red-letter Christianity, just the words of Jesus. Well, here's a good quote. <laughs> if anyone causes somebody to stumble, then it's better that they tie a millstone around their neck and go swimming with millstones. Now, when you think millstones, don't think a little one that just makes swimming a little bit difficult. Think of something about the size of your pillow, except made of stone. You don't want to go swimming with that. You certainly don't want it around your neck. It's not going to go well. In fact, um, more than that, it was, it was a practice that the pagans used, and, and it basically it was a shocking thing because it meant essentially that you, you died without a proper burial, to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the water, you didn't even have a proper burial. In fact, there were all sorts of myths and those sorts of things about that, that, that you would have this restless spirit and so forth and all stuff about ghosts. It was, it was basically, that is a death you do not want. And Jesus says, well, I'll tell you this. If you cause one of the little ones that follow me, if you cause that person to stumble, <whistles> you'd, be, you'd be better off swimming with a millstone. I mean, it's quite a caution. Essentially, what Jesus is saying in, in this moment is saying, you need to deal with that sort of a thing ruthlessly. But then he goes one more, and he's not just talking about people who might cause you to stumble, or maybe you causing somebody to stumble. He goes one more, and now he makes it real personal. Again, the person that God uses is going to be careful, about causing somebody else to stumble, the person that God uses is also going to be careful about themselves, causing themselves to stumble. And here is that slightly difficult reading. Uh-oh, if your foot causes you to stumble, if your hand causes you to stumble, if your eye causes you to stumble, well, cut it off or cut it out, because it would be better to, to actually you know, enter into the kingdom of God and enter into eternity you know, somewhat maimed than to actually have your whole person but find yourself in a, in a fiery judgment in, in, in hell for all of eternity. Again, Jesus is saying, if you, and, and this is basically the what, what Jesus is saying, think about your foot, your hand, your eye, your whole person. You're kind of all covered there, aren't you? If there is anything about you that might cause you to stumble or lead you into sin, you are better to cut it off or cut it out. You need to deal with with it ruthlessly. Lest you end up in a fiery judgment, if that causes you to stumble. And now in our English versions, just because of the the Greek, there is a little bit of a logic and a play on words here, which is a little bit difficult to follow. but, But just bear with me for a moment. Because Jesus is exploring what are the things that really make us stumble. Oh, somebody else might. Oh, you you might even cause yourself to stumble. But what are the real causes? What are the real things that make us stumble? That could make us sin and fall away from God? And the logic goes a little bit like this. And it's a bit difficult to pick up in our English. All the translations are wrestling with this and trying to do their best. But it goes something like this. Your foot, your hand, your eye could cause you to stumble and and you would face a fiery judgment. That would be bad, but fire isn't always bad. Fire can be good because actually fire can purify. Think about a sacrifice offered at the temple that goes into the fire, and it's a good sacrifice and it's a pure sacrifice. Fire can also purify, can't it? And that sacrifice actually often Could even be seasoned with salt. Salt itself actually can also be good. As long as it doesn't lose its saltiness. Salt can be good for you. In fact, so good, it would be good for you to have salt inside yourself. The inner you. Your heart. Jesus apparently thinks that salt is good for the heart. Your doctors may say otherwise. Jesus says it is. Salt is good for the heart there it is it's in scripture salt is good not if it loses its saltiness how do you make it salty again but have salt within yourself now jesus is getting to the core of the issue you could blame somebody else for causing you to stumble you could blame my foot did it my hand did it my eye did it but what are the real things that cause us to stumble isn't it the heart isn't it the inside? Isn't it what is actually going on in your life? Isn't it from within that we, that we churn and wrestle? And, and isn't it the desires, the evil desires within us that can cause us to stumble or cause us to, to sin? Jesus is essentially saying, indeed, your heart, the inner you, the real you, that actually needs to be purified. Purified by fire. It needs to be seasoned with salt. It needs to be made, made useful. It needs to be made new. You see, this passage here comes just after the transfiguration. Do you remember what the transfiguration is? Peter James, John with Jesus and right before their eyes, they get a glimpse of his ultimate exaltation. They see Jesus all of a sudden as he is seen in heaven. Now, you know our theme, let us walk on earth as we are known in heaven. Well, Jesus walked on earth and the disciples were with him all this time. And in terms of this thing we call the hypostatic union, they saw Jesus the man. They did not see him in his divinity except for this moment in the transfiguration, they had a glimpse of what Jesus would look like exalted. That that, that very picture that that we see in scripture, maybe we read Revelation chapter 4 and we're just in awe of who God is and we say, wow, I'd like to see that. And indeed, for everyone who is a part of the family of God, we will see it. We will see that. But just those few disciples there with Jesus in this moment. They have this privileged position of seeing it now, here and now. They saw how Jesus walked on earth, but now they saw how he is viewed in heaven. This is what the father of the sees. This is how God views Jesus. This is, oh, that's who you really are. It's a pretty spectacular thing. And you can imagine them getting pretty carried away with that just as you and I would, right? If we saw Jesus exalted, if we, we were there and saw Him transfigured in that moment, well, we'd be pretty excited. We'd kind of feel kind of good, wouldn't we not, about, ha-ha, we, we, we backed the right horse. We're on the winning team. We're, we're, we're on the right side here. This is cool. I, we knew He was a great teacher. We thought that He was the Messiah. We've seen Him do miracles, We put our trust in him. We've followed him. We've given up everything for this. Here we are following Jesus and we see him transfigured. Yes. Awesome. We're following the right one. This is the Messiah. Great. And what does that mean for us? Because this is the same passage in which the disciples are having all sorts of arguments on the road about who will be the greatest. You know, you might have thought that seeing God or Jesus high and lifted up, exalted, transfigured, that that might have humbled them. But no, it kind of got them talking about, haha, who's going to sit where here? What's our association? What's our position? Thinking that power is positional. What's that going to look like? But the transfiguration is actually bracketed by two other passages. Jesus' first prediction of his death, transfiguration, Jesus' second prediction of his death. And with his first prediction of his death, Jesus basically says, "I, I am going to die. I have to. This is the calling on my life. And you need to understand that if you were to be my disciple, likewise There can be no exaltation without sacrifice. Whoever wants to save his life actually has to lose it. Transfiguration. Second prediction of Jesus' death. Again, I am going to die. This is how it's been foretold. And if you want to be, the implications on discipleship are this. If you want to be first, you actually have to be last. You want to save your life, you've got to lose it. You want to be first, you've got to be last. The implications for discipleship is, if you want to follow me, if you want the exaltation, firstly, you must have the consecration, the sacrifice. There's no exaltation without, firstly, sacrifice. That's the path I'm following. And if you follow me, that's the path following that you are on as well. That's the t- trajectory. Years ago, I, I um, had recommended to me a, a biography of Billy Graham. This is a lesser-known one by Sherrod Wirt, who was the editor of a number of magazines and art, you know, articles for the Billy Graham crusade and Billy Graham organization and so forth. He got to see Billy Graham up close, and, and he includes a whole lot of detail that a lot of the other biographies and, in fact, the autobiography doesn't. It was a good read and I remember actually going through it and, and very early on in just the, the first few chapters, there was a, a story about Billy Graham going to the UK for one of the first times. There was going to be all these, all these meetings. It was very kind of very exciting, this American preacher from Youth for Christ coming over and, and he arrived there just to meet with different leaders. He was up in the north near the border of Wales. He arrived to meet with all these different leaders and he arrived late for one particular meeting and a guy by the name of Stephen Oldfield was preaching And he came in late to the meeting and then then Stephen was preaching about being filled with the Spirit of God. And and at the end of it, he sat down and he just sort of, you know, and I know what this is like, actually, after preaching, you feel a bit spent. And he he sat down, he just put his head in his hands and he just went to prayer. But then suddenly he became aware of somebody sort of standing over him and he he looked up and and there was Billy Graham. And Billy said, that was tremendous. I've just got one question for you. He says, yes. He said, why didn't you offer an altar call? He said, had you invited people to the front, I would have been the first one down. And that conversation actually started uh, meetings for the next couple of days. Because Billy Graham was, well, he was talented, he had an ability, he had a spiritual gift. He was kind of a charismatic figure and definitely a, you know, a good speaker. He was convinced about the word of God and God was using him powerfully, but he knew something was missing and he felt it was this indwelling of the Spirit of God, that there was a filling of the Spirit that he had not yet experienced. And so they, they met together in a room and they, they explored all sorts of things. And, and on one occasion, Stephen Oldfield said, Billy, there can be no Pentecost, meaning the coming of the Spirit, without a Calvary, meaning going to the cross. For the Spirit of God to fill a person, that person needs to be, that person needs to be absolutely cleansed. They need to be purified and there's only one thing that will do that, the blood of Jesus Christ. There has to be a dying to self. I've been crucified with Christ, no longer I that lives. There has to be that moment in order for the Spirit of God to completely fill a person. And and that led to a wonderful time of prayer and it, it led to confession and repentance. And at one point during that prayer time, Billy Graham declared that I've got it, I've got it. I'm now experiencing the indwelling, the, the filling of the Spirit of God like I've, like I've never experienced it before. Roy Hessian, author of, of a classic old Christian book called Calvary Road, he writes that revival, this is his definition of revival, revival is simply a continual experience of complete submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me say that again. Revival is simply... A continual experience of complete submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He laments that sometimes when we talk about revival, we talk about it, it was, it was back then and it was over here. And he says, I, th- I think that language is wrong. I think when we talk about revival, we should, we should be saying it's in here and it's ongoing We should never lament that, oh, back in those days when revival came, there is no reason why revival should stop. Because by his definition, it is just a continual submission to the complete lordship of Jesus Christ. You can have it all, Lord. We sing that, don't we? Revival is living it. I think it was D.L. Moody on one occasion who said, I think it's attributed to him, the world is yet to see what God can do through one man or woman completely surrendered to God. The world is yet to see what God can do through one person completely surrendered to him. And I don't think Dwight would argue with me here, but I, but I think it would be right to say, Actually, the world has seen what God can do through one man completely surrendered to him. That man, Jesus Christ, lives in me. That man lives in you. What the world needs to see now is once more what God can do through one person in whom the Spirit of Christ lives, And to whom you are completely surrendered. On a stopover, on a trip somewhere, I can't remember, but in Dubai, I recall going out to the mall one day and and it was a long, we took the train and it was a long walk from the station to the mall because we had to go around a, a new building site. There's going to be some massive, big building going in here, and, and and it was a long, long walk around this this site, and it was huge. At different points, you could get some photos of it and so forth, and I could not believe it. It looked like a quarry. It was just the excavation, I guess. You've got to, you know, particularly in Dubai, with so much sand, I guess you've got to dig pretty deep before you can get really. Really sure that the foundations are firm and, and have enough concrete to to be able to hold these buildings in place, but it was a pretty spectacular sight and as we were looking through it and, and again you know where I could trying to get a photo, it was just incredible diggers and dirt and trucks and qu- cranes and it was just it was incredible they were going down really, really deep and it reminded me of a Of a sermon or a message testimony, probably that I that I heard in the US one time. I don't know who she was. It was a black woman. And she was giving this testimony about basically a number of things in her life that were just going wrong. And she was talking about, you know, this happened and and then and you sort of think, oh boy, I mean that would be terrible. Most people wouldn't survive that. And then this happened, and you're thinking, Man, that happened to you as well? I, I can't believe you're up here telling us about it. And then this happened and it just kind of get deeper and darker and, and, and you just felt for this poor woman. I mean, she had had an incredibly tough life and you sort of, you know, it, it got worse and worse and worse. And you were just thinking, you poor lady, wow. And then she said this, but if you want to go up, firstly, you've got to dig down. If God is building the building, you want to go high, you want want to be exalted, then you actually have to be humbled. The higher you go or the higher you want to go, the further down he has to dig. Because if you really want to be the person that God uses and if you want to be used greatly and mightily of God and available to him, well, he's going to have to put down some really, really deep foundations. Before you go up, you have to go down. Before exaltation comes consecration, comes sacrifice, comes dying to self. And if if you kind of feel like you're in one of those times of your life where, yeah, I want to be a person that God uses. I, I, I want to be used greatly for Him. And, and probably, you know, in there are mixed motives. Probably there's a little bit about me in that. But listen, I'll put that aside. But I think there are some pure motives too that I just really, I do love God and I do want to be used for Him. I do want to do something significant for His kingdom. Right now, though, it just feels like I'm just going down, down, down. Or maybe God is answering your prayer. Maybe He's digging those foundations for you. Maybe he is taking you down because he wants to one day lift you up. Humble yourself before the Lord. He will lift you up, Peter says, and Peter knew it. He had been humbled mightily. If it looks like, you know, the spiritual trajectory of your life is down, okay. Maybe God's just doing the work, a necessary work, but a work in your life so that eventually he can raise you up use you for his purposes. It's often the way. Read the biographies of other people who have wanted to follow the Lord with, yes, all their heart, soul, and mind and and be used of him. Most of them. There are some times where it feels like God has dug almost all the way through. (laughs) Like, are we there yet, Lord? Surely this has gone through the core of the earth, the core of my being, and we're going to come out the other side. If you want to go up, you've got to go down. My belief is that that's God's invitation for us at the moment. Just as we commence the Gospel of Mark again and we look just with the eyes of the disciples, well, well, how does the power of God work? And what does greatness in the kingdom look like? And what does it mean to, to follow Jesus? And what is it like to be used of God, the person that God uses. It means he needs to dig down. It means there needs to be sacrifice before there can be exaltation. Now, I've got a hunch that in this room tonight, that that this is very, very relevant for a few of you. You would love to be used of God. You'd love to to give your life, to devote your life to doing something significant for your creator and the God that you love. And you're a little fearful of what the preparation looks like or perhaps you're even a little bit confused right now about what it is that God is doing in your life because it's looking very, very different to what you may have imagined. But trust him. Trust him. He's your father, he loves you, he cares for you. He only means good and nothing gets wasted. What he's doing right now in your life is preparing you for that very, very special thing, that good work that he has chosen uniquely for you to do since the beginning of time. He has gifted you and one of his gifts is digging deep into your life to set in place the sorts of foundations that are necessary so that you can be used of him for that significant work that you so desire to do. Well, let's pray, and I'd like to, like to invite you as we, as we pray to again enter into a little bit of a time of surrender this coming before the Lord, laying it all down once more and putting your agenda aside and, and adopting his once more, placing your trust in him, that he will work in your life, that he will use you. Just knowing and being reminded that he never forgets his children, you are not forgotten, he sees you, he knows you and he's doing a very, very special preparation work in you. Right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word and and just some of these hints here about the sort of person that you love to use. It's not positional, it's about the heart. For it's inside a person that there are things that can cause us to stumble and fall away. And that's where you want to do your work. At first, it's not pretty. Most of the public don't see it. Sometimes it can just look like a big gaping hole in our lives. But as you empty us of ourselves, you are able to fill us with yourself. As we become less... You can become more. Of Himself, Jesus said, Unless a seed falls to the ground, it remains but a kernel. But if it dies, it can produce a whole harvest as it multiplies. Lord, allow us to fall to the ground tonight for your glory would you please produce a harvest do a heart work in each of us father may we be well salted well seasoned in order to bring you glory this we ask in the precious authoritative name of jesus because we believe it's something that you want to do. We're agreeing with your will.